Welcome to episode 204 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show is recorded on Monday 26th of November 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Forbes.com contributor Carlton Reed, and welcome to the 204th episode of The Spokesman. On today's show, we end with a pre-recorded interview with Dr. Ian Walker, he of a famous helmet study. But we start with farts, uh, sorry, darts, um, actually both, as we welcome commentator Ned Bolting to the virtual round table. And joining us for the discussion that I recorded yesterday are show stalwarts, PR guru Donna Tochi, and outdoorsy attorney Jim Moss. So hi there to, well, first of all, to Ned. Ned, where, where exactly are you? Ned Bolting, you're somewhere in the southeast of England. Exactly where? Well, I can be much more exact than that. I'm at Butlin's Minehead in, uh, in Somerset, and I'm working on a, uh, a broadcast of uh, the Players' Championship Darts. Can I say farting at this point? Does that? Yeah, <laughs> you've been following the news, haven't you? Yeah, yes. Well, Donna, you've got, to, mi- you've got to Google that story, Donna. You've got to yeah, Google that's gonna, that story. That, that's going to mystify your international <laughs> guests, I would imagine. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, breaking wind has been a feature of international darts over recent weeks. But I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll rely on a search engine for you to sort the, the minutiae of that particular story out. Absolutely. So you're on the show because you're a cycling commentator, but you commentate on other sports apart from cycling and and now we know darts. What other other things you do? Well, it's probably really only those two. And, um, you know, cycling is clearly uh, the, the, the sport I cover more than any other, to, you know, probably to 90 percent. But I do. Um, there are about three darts tournaments I cover every year for the television. And um, actually, I've just written a book about darts as well. that's taken me three years to write. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a sport I absolutely love. And it's probably as far removed from cycling and you know, as you can possibly get and still call it sport. I, I think the two, the two sports sit, sit at the polar opposite extremes of the sporting spectrum. But maybe for that reason, I absolutely adore it. And they're not quite as skinny, the, the people you're associating with, Ned. Can no, we put it that and that, way? No, and that's, that's uh, yeah. Oh, there's another voice. Oh, we, yes, <laughs> that's, that's Jim. Hi there, Jim. We'll, we'll introduce you in a moment. So, Ned, we're, we're talking about skinny people. And oh, thanks. Not that's skinny. not nice. I come on and start talking about skinny people. See, Jim <laughs> is the right is the right shape for a darts player to tell the truth. As well, am I, I. As a target? <laughs> as a target? <laughs> I, the Jim, Jim and Donna, we've not met in person, but I would take that as a massive compliment. Uh, it means that you have, you are, you are living life to its fullest extent, if that's the case. And I, I salute you. Yeah, well, let's not go there that far. 
<laughs> okay, so Ned, I would like to talk about uh, other things apart from darts in a moment, but let's introduce some of the, the rest of people who are on the show here. So let's go to Jim, because Jim, you're a, a late starter in that we were having audio problems getting you on board, but fantastic, you're now here. You were having PC problems or something, Jim? I have no idea what I was having, but I just closed everything down and rebooted, and it seems to be working again. So you're Absolutely. calling from talking from Denver, Colorado, where it's sunny and cold. Do you have any snow? Uh, it snowed a little bit last night, but it's gone already. So it's 44 degrees. The mountain's got uh, two foot. Wow. wow. Now then, also uh, you can hear there uh, is Donna, Donna Tochi. How are you doing, Donna? What's, what's happening in Donna world? I'm good, thank you. I am just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and um, it is raining here. No snow. Don't want any of that. But it's, uh, it's good, and we're just wrapping up our Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S. And you had your dad across early, didn't you? You had, like, a different Thanksgiving than normal. I did. I did. Uh, my dad comes the weekend before, and then we go to my mom's the day of. So, um, so I get two, which is why I was talking to Ned about being the same size as his dark players. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Two, two Thanksgiving dinners. That's enough. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else happening in Donna world at the moment? Oh, Donna's looking for her next gig. I think that's what you're talking about. I, so. I, I was going there. Yes. Uh, Donna. Yeah, yeah, you I were was. going there. So, yeah. So I am uh, I'm looking for my next great adventure in communication, branding, digital space, whatever that may be. So at the end, when we talk about how to get a hold of us, I will tell you all of that. And can we just we'll fill in Ned a little bit. So we'll we'll go at least I think it's two jobs back. So. Kryptonite, you were there, Donna, when basically genuinely a textbook example of what to do in a in a corporate PR crisis. <laughs> okay, so you really want to go back to September of two thousand and four? I yes, but yes, we. Uh, I was the um, PR marketing person at Kryptonite, uh, which is the bike lock company. And um, when we had the first crisis on what was called the blogosphere at the time, mm. which is uh, back in 2004, there was a lot of static websites and a lot of forums. YouTube wasn't even created until 2005. So, um, so yeah, that's where, um, and I do talks on that a lot, actually, crisis management in the digital age. So um, that is, that's, that got me uh, invited to the podcast, I believe. I guess it did, yes. So, Ned, this has been going on for an awfully long time, this podcast. It's, yeah, it's ancient. Yeah, I'm, le I'm, learning, I'm learning things um, hand over fist here. I, I didn't know there was a kryptonite crisis. It's the first, thing I've, first, first time I've ever heard of that, I, for, for, the, for the record, and not that it's strictly relevant, is I own about three kryptonite locks, and um, I'm very happy with them. <laughs> well, How old good. are they? How old are they, Ned? Oh, let's not get into that. I don't know. Um, there are a few of them. Actually, I've suddenly, <laughs> I've suddenly remembered. I did have a fourth one. The first one I ever bought. The the um the the key um just came off in the lock the first time I <laughs> used it and got wedged in it. The keys were quite soft originally, and um I had no way of um getting access to my bike anymore. And I ended up getting a locksmith along who couldn't do anything to to prise the lock apart. And he ended up having to um get a kind of like, what do you call it, an oxyacetylene gun and sawing it in half <laughs> twice. 
it, I tell you what, that's kind was, of good PR for it. it I was, guess it was both good and bad PR, but it did make me think that's not a casual. No one's going to casually walk off with my bike anymore. They're quite impressive things. Well, the the PR crisis. I mean, and Donna can fill you in here, of course. But uh, the, the PR crisis is about something a very soft key. Donna, do you just want to talk about the soft key that you could use? <laughs> Well, it was um, in some case. Now I've got to go back to my. Um, in some cases, um, you could put the hollow piece of a pen into the lock and open it. Um, if you had the tubular cylinder lock, um, and it wasn't just kryptonite; it was any tubular cylinder lock that happened to have that particular cylinder in it. Oh, um, yeah, that didn't. So. Um, so we did a whole lock exchange program where you could um, exchange your lock for free and get a different type of um, key assembly. So we, um, at the time when I was there, and I'm sure they've done more now, but we replaced over 400,000 new locks and re-engineered nine years worth of new locks in 10 months. Wow, and it genuinely is a textbook. I mean, I wasn't just saying that as a as a phrase. It's genuinely in PR textbooks on how yeah, to because it, it was. You were saying it's interesting. You were saying it was before YouTube because, of course, this was a viral video before YouTube. So that's how it went viral. It, it, somebody was sharing it on. It must have been an early uh, form of YouTube, or just just the way you could uh, get the, the the tape across. So that's why it went viral. And that's why it went so big so quick. And, and it happened right before the trade show. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Interbike, the big trade show, you know, occurred a week later. Um, and Kryptonite just walked into a disaster. You know? mm. Well, it was a few anyway. weeks. It was a few weeks later. We had to um, redesign our whole booth. And I will never forget for anyone who's done a trade show for whatever brand they're part of, you know, you stand in your booth and you wait for people to come over. But I've never been part of a trade show where when the doors opened, I think most of the people outside the doors made a beeline directly to yeah. our booth. <laughs> I can imagine. Now then, uh, we also heard from uh, Jim there. So Jim, I don't know how formally you met, because uh, me and Donna met with Ned before we started recording, but how formally... Because I'm quite happy to say publicly, you want to buy Ned's books, yes? You know, everybody has their own addiction in life, and you have to broadcast mine across the world, Sphere. You like signed books, don't you? Not just, not just books, them. you like them yeah. signed. Uh, my retirement is in the basement in autographed books. Mm. <laughs> you could build one, and, and I'm not built on the foundations yeah. of autographed books you've never read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I'm not worried about anybody coming to steal them because I yeah. can't even get friends to help me move anymore. I have to pay somebody. Mm. You know? so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 my father always said, don't give Jim a book for Christmas. He'll just read it. Um, <laughs> I love books. I, I mean, I have one, two, three, four. I got... Well, I'm not even on the bookshelf. I got six books sitting here to read, and there's, you know, 30 next to the bed, and there's the bookshelf here in the office. Got a hundred, of which four are mine. Um, and then, you know, the basement's got four thousand. So, so Ned's book, which I know you you want to get there, there, Jim. Not trying to put any pressure on you, you at all there. Um, <laughs> but Ned's book is I don't know how much of this in makes sense in America, but. It's like that. It's the, it, Ned. It's based on like sort of like the Wisdom's Almanac, which is a very, very famous, very, very old sure. cricketing stats book. Oh, it, 
the name Wisden means um, means to any sort of uh, UK British sports fan uh, is an absolute sort of byword for um, uh, for kind of heritage and um, and tradition going back well over a hundred years. I think it's about one hundred and forty years old. Wisden mm. uh, it's been published every year, and it basically re- records um, every cricket match of any significance at whatever level uh, played across the world, and uh, gets you know reproduced on Bible thin paper. Uh, complete with lots of editorial content and all this sort of thing. And it's hugely collectible. I mean, these things, if you had a first edition wisdom, if you were lucky to that, you could, you know, you could swap that and buy a country mansion. Um, so these things are, these things are absolutely collected and they're beautiful and they come out every year and they're very widely distributed. And I think for a long time, people have been thinking that um, there are other sports which uh, could embrace this kind of tradition. And uh, we, we thought that road cycling was was clearly one of them that would uh, would work well with this kind of treatment. Now I'm assuming that sorry Jim I'm assuming that like Phil Liggett of this world and yeah. yourself and and other commentators have had their own versions of this you know forever and a day but in like you know loose leaf um, form yeah. they've they've had to have these stats to their fingertips but you're now bringing something out that's basically an annual form mm. of the kind of information that a, a, a really top commentator would have yes i mean it, that's a very interesting point you raise because there's the question of the, in the in the kind of online database world there's the question of usefulness you know i, I think if you if you show if you show this book to commentators and you mentioned the, the name the great phil liggett who's been commentating for 40 years it, I've, you know phil is actually um, on our on our judges panel and i'll come to that but if you show him this book he would go, well, my God, why wasn't that book around when I was yeah. starting in the 1970s? I mean, there were briefly, you know, the French had a version that lasted a little while. In Italy, there was a, there has been sporadic kind of like versions of this principle. And the Dutch have had one as well, but nothing of this kind of inclusivity in class and frankly, size and heft. Um, but, but you see, I mean, I, I commentate on the Tour de France and other bike races this year. Actually, um, the most, in inverted commas, you know, bluntly useful tool is online. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You know, for, mm. the speed of access and all this kind of thing, if you need to fact check something very quickly, um, you know, you, it's hard to replicate the efficiency of, if you can get a good broadband connection, all the various databases that exist online. So this isn't, I don't think this book is about that. This book is about a different kind of understanding of data and the vast amounts of data that a, a cycling year generates. And it's more of a, it's a book. And Jim's expressed his you know, love for the, the actual physical fact of a book. So this is something that you pick up and you open it random. You know, there are 800 and I think 80 pages. So you, you open it at random at page 412 and you happen to find out that this Belgian rider finished um, you know, seventh on, the sta- on, the, on stage three of the Tour of Rwanda which leads you to wonder about the team that he rides for because you've never heard of this team. So then you flip forward to where the teams are and you learn a little bit about those teams and one thing leads to another. So you, you kind of stroll around it because it's a pleasure to leaf through these pages, which I have so beautifully produced. And this isn't something I don't think that people do online. Um, they, they tend to mm. sort of need to find out one fact. They dive in, they get the fact and they come back out again. Yeah. Whereas yeah. this is... Um, this Donna, is like, do you think this is a bloke thing? What's that? You think this is a bloke thing? A bo- like <laughs> stats? Is this a man thing? A stat no, thing? You, the, the, you want to add this raw information? I know what bloke means. Um, but, um, <laughs> you were literally can't, so you were just mansplaining the word bloke to her there. That's amazing. I, was, I can't I believe you've done that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all good. All good. No, but I, 
No, I think anybody who is passionate about a, a sport, any sport, would love to have what this book seems to be. And granted, I have not read it, but I did look on the website. And what really interested me personally is that um, there were a ton of stats in there. So you're right, you could go and look. Um, but there were also, it, it appeared, articles or essays from other Correct. people, so it's not just Correct. one person's point of view. And then... Mm -hmm. For me, who maybe I'm not as into all the stats, is there were some really great photos that weren't black and white photos. They're color photos that were of a very different perspective, at least from what I saw on the website. So I don't think this is, you know, just for one gender or the other, provided that there actually were the women's events covered, too. And that that seemed like in the description, it seemed like that might have been a little mm. afterthought. But if the women's events were in there, too, I think this is a book for everyone who's passionate about the sport. Could I, um, I just pick up on that point, Donna? Because we, we we were very conscious of the fact that you know we this, this is uh, you know this is the, the women's side of the sport is has to be reflected to its truest extent. And if you're suggesting that um, it, it does appear to be an afterthought, I I take issue with you in this sense because actually um, women's sport in terms of road racing is something of an afterthought, right? So that's that's yeah. we are reflecting the state of the way things are you know the men's the men's side of, of road racing eclipses women's racing by a factor of 10 to 1 um, oh yeah but you know and that's just the way it is so it would be it would be an act of perversity to augment uh, women's racing beyond the status that it occupies in the world uh, road racing ca calendar that said it gets absolutely massive treatment in this book far outstripping anything that's gone before simply because this book's enormous you know, so every single World Tour race is documented and written about, and and, and there we go. You know, so if that's a problem, if that's a problem, I would suggest take issue with the governance of world road racing rather than yeah. us who are, are are reflecting it. You know, that, that's what no, we no, do no. here all the time. It's n nothing no, no, no. new for us to take issue with UCI. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. But no, no, no. It wasn't that. It was more in the description when I read the description. Yeah. Um that you have on the website, it just seems yep. like it would be an afterthought. So you may actually want to go back and add another line to what you just told me, which may mm -hmm. bring more people in to watch it. Like we have actually covered this extensively because it doesn't really say that on your website. So that's just with my little editor hat put on. Um, I'll, I'll take that on board. It's, very, it's, it's all useful feedback and, and very valuable as well because what we're trying to do here, this is also the trick, is we're trying to create not a, not a one-off book for one year, but a book that will come back in its form, you know, without changing greatly for hopefully generations. And so that was the real challenge to, to find a design actually that we're all happy with that sits there on the shelf and looks, because it's an expensive product, I make no bones about that, but sits on the shelf and looks like it's been there forever. You know, you want to pick up a book and go, mm. my God, that's look, that just looks like a heritage thing that's always been around and that in 10 or 20 years won't look dated. And that was very, that's very, very difficult thing to get right. Do you know, I don't think we've actually mentioned the title yet, but I think the Jim, yeah. Jim's dog was trying to, to tell us there. Just him growling is, is saying to me, we need to mention the name of the book here. So what is your book called, Ned? It's called, quite simply, The Road Book. And then the subtitle is Cycling Almanac 2018 for this year. So that is obviously saying there'll be The Road Book 2019. For 2019. Correct. And then 20. And... Correct. Beautiful. That's, Correct. You've got a career there just with that. 
Well, and also, I mean, I, I sent, a, for example, I sent a copy to Chris Froome, who's written some um, words for us, you know, about his Giro d'Italia win. Um, and he lamented the fact that his other wins haven't been documented in this fashion so that he can't mm. put that year on his shelf. And so, well, why, isn't, why wasn't this around in 20, uh, 2013, you know? Um, and, and actually, we've had the idea, uh, ho- uh, hoping and assuming this, this book is around for, for, for a while, um, forever, hopefully, we want to even go back in time and, and start to produce in, in future years, Ooh. you know, the, the, the slim, uh, much slimmer because the wealth of information wouldn't be around, but a really lovely, beautiful, the, this was 1969, you know, mm. the road book for 1969 or 1974 or even 1903, the first year the Tour de France was mm. ever raced, you know. We thought that'd be an interesting potential future avenue to explore as well. Yeah. A, a library is the history of our own accomplishments. And so it, it, it may be on the internet, but we still have the feeling. Well, hardback books are now outselling um, electronic books again, but we still like the feeling of, of holding that piece of paper and cardboard and, mm. and cloth. And when we see your name in print, I'm always reminded of that scene from The Jerk when Steve Martin first sees his name in the telephone book and he goes, I do exist, you know? Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And when you pick up that book and you go, oh my goodness, there's so-and-so and I met him and there's so-and-so and I met him. Um, I, I've, I've got another way that, that you should sell your book. You should try sell it in a way that autograph seekers should get the signatures of every single person who's mentioned in the book. <laughs> that would be, that would be, it. but I'll tell you, you know, one thing that we, we found, frankly, um, probably just a little bit beyond us in year one, but we do harbor the ambition to, to develop is, um, and this could be global, but let's start with the UK since it's kind of a UK publication. Um, we wanted to get every one of the, some six, 700 affiliated cycling clubs in the UK to, to register their details and give us a little pricey of of their leading achievements, you know. And so they, you know, every club has a ten mile time trial champion and a hill climb champion and all this sort of thing. Why why don't why can't we get all that information down here and collate it so that their individual amateur achievements sit alongside, you know, Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan and, and Chris Froome and and, um, and uh, Annemiek van Fluten and, and the rest of the, the the greats of the year, you know. So. That, that's a that's a huge task, I have to say, of kind of collating the information. But it'd be lovely if we can manage that as well. So it's so, also a big world yeah. out there, Ned. So this is not just a UK book; it's a global book. Absolutely, we're getting so the orders are coming. It's been on, it's been available to buy for the last two and a half weeks, three weeks now, and it's fascinating to see where the clicks are coming in and where the interest mm. is. So they've you know we've shipped to Uganda, we've shipped to lots of the United States and uh, and to Canada already. It's gone to Australia, South Africa, so. Um, to Russia, to Eastern Europe, and and hu- really pleasingly, actually, there's a huge take-up of interest in, if you like, the mainland European heartlands of, of world cycling. So France, Spain, Italy, Belgium have all really kind of shown an interest because nothing in those in those central territories like mm. this exists, which is a dereliction of duty. Really, they should be the ones producing it and selling it to us. So absolutely, it's it's a world product for sure. And are these individual orders coming via your website or can you get them from like uh, bookshops in uh, in overseas? So here's the, um, no, here's the challenge. Everything is, everything is going through our website at the moment, everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that that we have done that is because I've alluded to the price point. It's expensive. It's 50 pounds. 50 pounds. What's Um, that in US? Like nearly a hundred dollars. Well, we haven't sunk that low. Have we on the exchange rates just yet? I don't know. I haven't looked, but um, 
But yeah, it's pricey. I mean, it's it's actually exactly the same price as Wisdom sell there. You know, we've talked about the Cricketer's Almanac before. So um, for my money, for a much more beautiful book, by the way, it's nearly two, <laughs> it's new two, two kilograms and twice the size mm-hmm. um, and much nicer paper that's printed on it. It feels extraordinary. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Yes, um, but the reason for that is there are big online retailers in the world, aren't there? Right? I think we can name one or two. Um, <laughs> but 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 they, you know, they mark stuff down so acutely that the business becomes unviable for us. If we were to do mm-hmm. that um, with the, the 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 big South American river uh, organization, um, they would, frankly, they would destroy us. You know, because um, because we can't protect our profit margin. Because if somebody's going to, you know, discount it that heavily, then no one is going to want to pay the fair and reasonable price, which is what we're asking at the moment for a product of this equality. You know. Yeah, that's a good model. So we're not we're not sending people elsewhere when we're going to mention your website um, and and say where to get this. We can't go to that that correct, uh, correct. that particular river system. It's going to have yeah. to be your dedicated website. Yes, it it it, it will be. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we make no, you know, no, we're not going to apologize for that at the moment. The challenge for us is <laughs> is making this work, you know, making people and thank you for featuring it, you know, making people aware that this this website and this product exists. But we've hit the ground running and we've had some very very impressive sort of resonance on it so far. We just need to keep up the momentum because people who people who have put their hands in their pockets and invested in this and bought it this year they want it to come back for next year mm. you know they want to start collecting it now i understand that completely yeah i mean it's so so what i'm here in the united states strava is our record keeping thing and yet mm. you could be the top of the world in 2018 and you don't exist in 2019 because <laughs> somebody else beat you and, and think about what you could provide to people if you went down to the club level down to the race level that you says, go. you know, hey, here's, you know, I may only won one copy of your book, but it's the year I was in it, you know. Well, that's a dream on my part. I'll wake up eventually. Um, so, I mean, but, and, and if you own one, you're going to own others, you know. And what about also race directors looking to see who's coming up? You know, yeah, who should I'm, your next person be? Now, listen, having said, having said it's not necessarily a, a, a you know, a, a, a useful tool um, for for a commentator in the heat of the moment, you know, I've got to, I've got to have much faster access than leafing through a um, uh, through a very long book. But 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 absolutely, if I was Patrick Lefevre and I was running Quick Step Floors, you know, I would have a copy of this and I would spend my time pouring through it and go, that name keeps recurring. I better find out a, bit, a little bit more about him. So I think it's um it's definitely got potential there. But you've just given us a very good idea there, I think, Jim, about the idea of potentially including a list of Strava King of the Mountains, Queen of the Mountains. Winners mm. um, or holders year on year. I think that's a very good, that's a very good mm. that's a very good idea and one that we should probably probably explore. And, and, and but, ne- but you need to have Strava pay you to do that. Uh, do they yeah. own that information? Is that in the public domain? I don't know. We should. We no, they own the they they own the information. But more importantly, you're providing them with a real outlet. You're providing them with immortality. You know if. if we, the Strava King of the Mountain is in your book. Strava needs to put their, yeah. you know, their name is there. Give well, them I can listen. I completely agree with you. We'd have to convince Strava yeah. that. But I think that's a very interesting idea. What you're outlining there is this. And we spoke about it before. You're outlining the balance between the 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 the, the, um, the uh, digital, the ephemeral, the virtual world, and the and the tangible, um, eternal world, if you like. Books last 
books last a millennium if you look after them correctly, you know, and they sit there on the shelf. And that's a really good, I think you've raised a really interesting point there. Can we immortalize uh, digital achievements on paper? Oh my goodness, Ned, you- that would be a little crazy. I'm just saying <laughs> from, you know, the people I know on Strava who are <laughs> the whole king, king of the mountain or king of the stages is quite, uh, quite competitive. And changes often. Well, mm. well, this is it. We'd have to find. We'd have to find out what the ultimate is on Strava. I don't know much about yeah. Strava. I don't. I don't do it. I never ride with a computer on my bike. I just. I just. I just tuck my right hand um, trouser leg into my socks and push off. That's all I do. I'm not interested nice. in anything. Yeah. How, how do you find your way home? <laughs> I never go far from home. Not these days. Well, I'm Ned, not, I'm not allowed to circle the block alone anymore. So, <laughs> Ned, you, you said something before. You said we. That's not a royal we. No, no. That's that's uh, who who is we? So, there are four people who've made this book happen, and then a bunch of others who've really contributed enormously. But there's a core group of four of us who are the roadbook, if you like. My my agent and business partner, a guy called Jonathan Marks, who owns a company called MTC, who's done the money bit, yeah, and and and, and attracted a bit of investment to make this happen in year one. Um, then, then really significant in making the book work, a lady called Charlotte Atio, who um, for 10 years was editor of Wisdom. So brings all that experience um, to mm. bear. So she knows, understands precisely how to make an almanac. And the final person, and by far the most important person, is something of a cycling Twitter phenomenon. A man go, who goes by the name of um, at Irish Peloton, but whose real name is Killian Kelly. Yeah who is a wonderful bloke. He is a, he's, got, he's a passionate cycling fan. He's got a fine editorial mind, but most significantly, he is two things. He is the leading cycling statistician in the world, and he takes a huge amount of pleasure in digging out extraordinary statistics that no one else could possibly come up with. And secondly, and just as importantly, get this, he's a software designer. So, 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 so um, to, to create this book, and, but we had two weeks to get it, um, from the last World Tour race that was completed to a printed physical copy to turn it around. Wow. He, he developed. Wow. So obviously, as the year was going, we'd been you know, getting it ready to push the hit button. But in order to do that, um, he had developed software that um, scraped various sources on the internet, cross-referenced them so that we knew that what we were looking at was correct, um, and, then, and then formulated in, into the tabulation that our designers and we had eventually settled on. Um, to sit alongside all the written content and the editorial stuff that Charlotte and I were, were very much involved in. So without Killian having been, A, you know, in, engaged enough to want to do this labyrinthine task and, B, have the wherewithal and the know-how to do the technical side of it, this book wouldn't have happened. He's fundamental to its, its, its In fact, I genuinely think without Killian, I don't think anyone else on the planet could have done it or would have wanted mm. to, you know. So he's, we've got the dream team now. I'm really proud of them all. And then you're saying before about judges, and you you brought in Phil Leggett and stuff there. So what's what's going on there? Yeah, well, we do. We have, um, you know, in a humble way, because you can't trumpet a, a bunch of awards that mean nothing uh, in year one. But we've assembled, we, we've issued, we've decided on amongst the jury that we've selected six six different riders of the year, 
a, a women's rider of the year, men's rider of the year, women's young rider of the year, men's young rider of the year, and then a combativity prize for both men and women. And they've been selected by a jury that we have assembled, uh, which includes um, Ryder Hejdal, the Canadian winner of the Giro d'Italia, um, David Miller, of course, who's won, you know, all, worn all leaders' jerseys on all the Grand Tours. I'm going to forget some names here, so bear with me. <laughs> Phil, Phil Liggett, the voice of cycling. Uh, Christian Prudhomme. <laughs> the director of the Tour de France is one of our jurors. Uh, Sean Kelly, one of the greatest you know racers there's ever been, is on the jury. Um, uh, la, 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 la. A few others, and I have forgotten them, but they're all in, the, in, in their ways sort of champions. So a really credible um, bunch of names there that have helped us out. Because we don't, I mean, me, you, Ned, yeah. we don't hear the name of Phil Liggett much anymore. Uh, uh, Americans and Australians will, will. So he's he's fallen off our radar, sadly, because he's no longer on the program that you were on, Uh, but he is, he is in other countries. So he's still big elsewhere. He's just not big here anymore. Oh, he is big. I mean, you know, you're you're right to say I I had the uh, duty and the responsibility and the honour of sort of, if you like, being the next person to commentate after Phil Liggett for British television. But I'm, mm. but I'm very aware that um, not only is his voice still heard in North America and in Australia and in South Africa, but equally, um, and, and, but equally it's still heard in, in the audience's heads to whom I'm broadcasting. You know, I, for me, Phil Liggett is the voice of summer. Um, uh, that's my my education in the Tour de France was listening to Phil, and I think mm-hmm. even when I'm commentating now, people could be forgiven for thinking of it in terms of Phil Liggett's voice because it still it still resonates. And and you know, having fa- fairly regular contact with Phil in flesh and blood, I can tell you he's still very well and alive and kicking, and uh, as as you say, still broadcasting to other areas. Yeah, he's he's important enough in cycling that, that if you can afford to have a race and bring him to the U.S you will make it. I mean, I think NBC Sports almost requires it. So, Yeah, he's. It, it's funny the way that's, that's worked out, but I, I really get a sense of the enthusiasm with which Phil and Paul and their work and also the various other guys who work on NBC, you know, Christian Vandervelde and the, the, the legendary Bob Bob Key. Um, you know, they're, they are, they're all good guys and we all muck along together on the Tour de France. So I'm, I'm very aware of the status that Phil right, rightly still carries across the pond. No, it's, that's good to hear because literally, as as a as a Brit watching the Tour de France, we just don't get Phil anymore. Really? No, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, that would be surprising to to Americans and Australians, but no, we just don't get Phil anymore. No, I mean, the, the, the not not Paul, of course. No, I, I don't know what to say quite because uh, because um, unfortunately, the last three years you've you've had me. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying this is like. <laughs> but before there was, there was, there was, you know, you're all on together. It's not as though you've replaced them as such. You know, you were doing a different no, kind that, of job. That's right, a very before, different job. But on, you're all together. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I switched from presenting and reporting to to commentating on on cycling a, a few years ago, and I think you know. Listen, Phil, as great as he is, like any of us, like um, like Donna, Jim, or, or you, Carlton, none of us are going to last forever in our various jobs, and we all, no one's immortal. And I think ITV were sort of trying to figure out a succession plan um, years out from having to, mm-hmm. you know, from, from from receiving the phone call from Phil or having to take the decision that maybe um, we needed to move on. They they kind of got ahead of the curve, if you like, and have groomed if that's the correct word probably not um david david miller and myself to be you know a a partnership hopefully which we both hope will endure for for a number of years well that means you guys aren't part of the big contest then um here in the united states velo press has a giant whiteboard they put up for the tour 
and they mark down every mistake that people make. So if oh, they don't heavens. hear you, you're not on the mistake list. I'm happy about that. Live. <laughs> Especially in these in these days of, of wall-to-wall coverage, you know, like from, No, yeah. you get into private eye, don't worry. Yeah, I've, I've seen I've, you in private I've, eye. I've appeared in private eye, which probably mean nothing to Donna <laughs> and Jim, but don't explain it to them, Carlton. They don't need to know what private eye is. <laughs> Uh, Ned, how long have you got before you've got to get back to doing darts? I've got about five more minutes, so till quarter two my time, yeah. Well, in that case, in those few minutes, let, let's get some basics down. Give us, give us um, your website yeah. uh, for the book, the website for maybe your, your because you do one-man shows as well, you can tell us about that, and give us where we can, we can people can find you uh, on social media. Well, I'd go by my name, which is at Ned. Ned Bolting, haven't got a silly uh, name that goes beyond that. And um, The Road Book is very simply at www.theroadbook.co.uk. Uh, so that's theroadbook.co.uk and very straightforward. And as I say, we ship to North America and, um, and we'll get it there in time for Christmas. Obviously not in time for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which has clearly just happened um and yeah thanks i do a one-man show in the autumn which has come to an end and i don't i, I hopefully i'll do another one next year and we can uh, maybe do another podcast about that so uh, they've been busy times but um the darts board the darts board's calling so i should probably um the, the, the darts beckon the, ned darts that's ever so kind for you to take some time out from commentating about darts to come and talk about cycling thank you very much thanks. cheers ned bye cheers. And uh, Donna and Jim, if you don't mind, we will uh, go over to David uh, for a bit of a sponsor's message. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody. It's David. And I am here. Well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N usa.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. JensenUSA.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between. Components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. And thanks, David. And we are back and we had uh, Ned Bolting on the show uh, in the first half of the show. And now I have got Donna and Jim without uh, Mr. Darts and Mr. Cycling, Mr. Bolting. Um, so Donna and Jim, have you ever heard of the Wisden Almanac before? I had not. I've heard of the Farmer's Almanac. <laughs> we have the Farmer's Almanac. It tells us when this, it's going to snow and when to plant, but no, other than that, no. 
Um, now then, we did uh, the the show notes that we do before the show completely went out of the window uh, because uh, Ned came on a bit earlier. Uh, we were having a, a few technical problems earlier on, so we didn't start where we thought we were going to start. So we can now the second half of the show we can we can kind of go a bit backwards if that's okay with you guys. And that is, I just want to talk about uh, helmets because the last show was me and Jim talking about helmets. And that kind of got a bit of attraction. <laughs> traction, I should say. Uh, because it's, we all know it's an incredibly emotive uh, subject. So I am going to play uh, at the end. We'll, we'll, I was going to do it before the break, but now I'll just do it as we'll, we'll play out to this. I am going to do some uh, an audio interview that I did with Ian Walker, Dr. Ian Walker, who is the guy who did the very famous study uh, when he was wearing a, a brunette wig and motorists would then give him um, extra room on the road. And when he put his helmet on instead of the wig, they came very close to him, suggesting, he said, that uh, motorists think people who wear helmets are clearly very, very good at riding a bike. They're clearly protected so they can go much, much closer to them, which, if you think about it, clearly eats up all the benefits uh, of of any benefits that, that helmets may or may not have, which is which is definitely frightening so I'll, I'll i'll end with that audio but just let's just open it up and donna i don't know how much of that you you knew about the fact that this study was out there and it's now been replicated in that you get passed closer if you wear a helmet do you find that at all scary i find the whole thing a little scary um and i had seen it when you you tweeted it i think last week or something um i, I don't and and things that, that popped out at me with the I, I listened to the piece that you're going to play and and read the article and and a couple things. One, I think it's awful that people do come closer when they see a cyclist with a helmet on. What are they thinking? Um, and, you know, helmet against car is really not a lot of protection. Um, and also, I wondered, you know, um, Dr. Walker was going on about the study in Australia versus his study and all of that. And I just wondered if there were different thoughts about cyclists in general um, in in the, the countries, if they were different. So if cyclists are, you know, seen um, a little bit better by, by motorists in the UK, maybe than Australia or vice versa. Um, because I know if you did a study like this in Holland versus the U.S., there would probably be very, very different data collected. Um, so I wondered that as well. Um, but people, just because someone has a helmet on does not mean you can get closer to them. Stop it. Well, see, I don't think it's conscious. I think it's subconscious. Um, there was a study done, oh, it's been 20 years ago now, that I've been, I've just really jumped on. Uh, by a gentleman from a Canadian college that about risk homeostasis, or uh, there's a new term for it now. But what it means is, is that when we feel safe, then we tend to push our limits a little bit more. And so there were a couple, there were several studies have been done that show if you're skiing and you ski at a normal speed down at the same run, you put a helmet on, you ski faster. Um, the, the gentleman who wrote the book, he started out with looking at um, disc brakes on cab drivers in New York. And when they put in uh, better braking systems, analog braking, disc brake systems, they traveled faster and they stopped in shorter distances. 
And I'm wondering if it's just a sort of a reverse homeostasis, which says, if I see somebody who's safer, in my opinion, I don't have to give them as much room. You know, so I see the person, the guy's got a helmet on, therefore he's safe, therefore I don't have to work so hard to get around him. Oh, so like a subconscious thing. Yeah. I don't, th I don't think it's people saying he's got a helmet on, I can drive closer and do so. I think that they just automatically click, okay, he's safe. You know, I mean, a semi passes you and it, it was scary because it's so close, but at the same time, the semis keep passing us and we keep riding on the interstate. And yet we feel safe inside the car, even though the semi can run over us and flatten us with no problem. Um, I, I've had previous conversations with Ian about this. So I, I would say, Jim, I think he would agree with you. I um, mean, there's a, a, a very good article from a good five years ago in uh, the Psychologist magazine, which interviewed Ian, and he talked about that. So I'll actually put that into the into the show notes. So I'll go and dig that out, in which he talked about that exact thing. So I would say you're, you're on the money there, Jim. Yes, it's... I mean, if you think about the entire world believing that cycling, that a helmet is going to save your life. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, here in the United States, for, here again, for ski helmets, sales started to just jump astronomically when we had a uh, an actress die of a head injury. But the head injury she received wouldn't have been protected by a helmet. Um, it was a type of head injury. It was a twisting, falling head injury that didn't matter what she had on. She could have had a, a Department of Transportation approved motorcycle helmet on. She still would have died. Um, mm. And so people believe that a helmet's going to save their life. And consequently, people believe that if you're wearing a helmet, it's going to save your life. And that's not true in any case, either case, either case. So I covered all three mm -hmm. versions of the English language then. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cut one of those out and just, just do the one. Which would you rather have, Jim? <laughs> Pick, choose, pick, pick, pick above. Um, Jim, I, I know that uh, you said before, and you very kindly have come on the show because you said it's such fantastic weather out there uh, in, in Boulder, Colorado, that you wanted to get out there. So I'm going to let you get out I, there very, very shortly. I, I got I to gotta reprieve, so we're okay. Oh, okay. But we've got to, we can't go on forever and ever anyway. <laughs> so I, I'm going to say that uh, we've, had, uh, we've had the road book, at the first half of the show with with Ned uh, coming on. He's now commentating on darts. I'd love to actually have a live stream of him uh, covering uh, uh, overweight men uh, throwing little arrows at uh, a, a bit of, of a, of a, a I round. Mean, that's like, that's we like can't. me and NASCAR, um, like darts and cycling, NASCAR and cycling. Like that, you know, two very different things, which is great because that's how the world goes um, around, right? With people with diverse interests. Love it. Unbelievable. Yeah. E ectomorph versus endomorph, <laughs> that particular, um, <laughs> those two sports for sure. Uh, but I am going to call it a, a day now so we can go out and do our respective things uh, unless it's raining in Boston. So that maybe aren't going out there, Donna. Uh, but do thank you uh, very much for coming on. Now, I'd like we've we've had uh, where Ned's book and, and where he can found on social media but jim where can we where can we find out about you uh twitter 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 uh at one word either recreation either. law yeah it's been a rough morning <laughs> recreation law dot uh dot 
recreation-law.com or recreation.law at gmail.com. Just Google recreation law, you'll find me. You will. And Donna, where can we find you? And and why should we find you at the moment? What are you looking for in in the in the way of your next opportunity? My next great adventure. I'm looking for something with communications, mm. branding, digital, anything in that space. Um, but my full uh, resume, if you will, is on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. You can also find me on Twitter at Donna Tosi, all one word, uh, last name T O C C I. And um, you can find me on Instagram as well, but there will not be a lot of cycling there. There will be a lot of husky pictures and pictures of my nieces. Yeah. So, um, so if that's not your thing, you probably want to stick to to Twitter or LinkedIn. So that's where you find me. So we get we get visuals with you, and we get the audio of dogs from Jim. Yeah. <laughs> And that was the, that was a small one at only ninety seven pounds. But okay, so I do. Well, because because Ned I do was have talking. A tip, though I know we're not doing tips, but I do have a tip uh-huh. because I, oh, I yeah, will yeah, cover yeah. for all of you. So from all of us at the spokesman, because I think <laughs> I can probably speak for all of you, is to we have a thing in the U.S. called Small Business Saturday, which is which was yesterday as we're recording Mm -hmm. this. Um, But it's all about going out and supporting your local small businesses. And I think I can say for all of us during this holiday season, go out and support your local bike shop. Go and purchase something from them. Be be a patron. Um, Just support your local bike shop. Uh, Well, given my former... Uh, uh, employee ing then that I would definitely be with you on that one Donna thank you very much for that tip and that's a very good one and I would absolutely agree with that considering one of the things we haven't talked about today which is the other thing that was on the notes was the collapse the sad collapse of uh, of ASE in in the US and of course the takeover of the equivalent in the UK which was uh, Evan Cycles which doesn't say a great deal about bike retail at the moment so absolutely if you want your bike shop to still be around uh, after Christmas, get in there before Christmas and and buy them out, basically. So I am now going to run uh, the audio uh, with uh, with Ian Walker. So that'll be the uh, the outro. Uh, I'll do the the get out there and ride, of course. And thank you for subscribing to the show, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's out of the way, and we'll just go into Doctor Ian Walker. So Ian. Uh, you've got this study out with uh, today with Dorothy uh, Robinson of Australia. But before we talk about that, just rewind to 2007. So because this this current study is basically an update of that rebutting another study. So w- what was the 2007 study all about? So the original piece of work was looking at uh, what might influence the amount of space that drivers left as they passed a rider in the street. Uh, so I spent some time riding around, changing my appearance or behavior in various ways and measuring how much space drivers left as they overtook. And so I looked at things like positioning on the road, um, whether I appeared to be male or female and whether or not I wore a helmet. And you know, all those other uh, findings so the finding that large vehicles treat you worse than small vehicles, the finding that women get treated better than men, they've all been replicated since uh, and, and all stand up and everyone seems quite happy with those findings. 
But there's been continuing controversy with the finding that drivers got a bit closer when I was wearing a helmet. And uh, several people have really disliked that finding. And uh, in particular, a group of Australian researchers a few years ago wrote a reanalysis of the data, which they claimed said that the effect wasn't true. And then you've take because you you published your your data was open source, so they could take your actual data set, yeah. That's right, yeah. And then they they recrunched it. So you've recrunched the recrunch, or you've taken what? So how, how have you rebutted their recrunching of your data? Well, so you know, as you can imagine, if somebody writes a paper saying that your work is wrong, you obviously look at it in a bit of detail. Um, so it became clear that. Um, for whatever reason, the question they'd set themselves when they recrunched my data was actually a slightly different question to the one that I asked. So the question I asked is, is wearing a helmet associated with drivers getting closer? However, what the researchers in Australia did was to change the question slightly. And rather than say, did it lead to drivers getting closer? They said, did it lead to drivers getting close? So actually, what they did in their paper was they, first of all, they repeated my analysis. And sure enough, they found that when I, when the helmet was being worn, drivers tended to get closer. But then they did a second analysis that asked this question, did drivers, were they more likely to pass within one meter? In other words, did they get close, with close defined very specifically as one meter? And so the first thing I did was to note that they had actually changed the question somewhat. And then I said, well, okay, fair enough. Maybe that's fine. Let's see if this new question actually stands up to scrutiny. And what became quite clear was that it didn't because it all hung on this one meter definition of close. And even if you take their own data, their own analyses from their paper, if you change that one meter a little bit, if you change it to, let's say, close is coming within 1.5 meters, or if close is coming within two meters, then actually their conclusions completely reverse. And they would say, yes, uh, when the helmet was worn, drivers were more likely to come close. So the only situation in which drivers weren't more likely to come close is if you define close as exactly one meter. And so the arbitrary nature of that definition is, is a key stumbling block for their paper, I feel. So... Without going down into a conspiracy theory rabbit hole, why do you think their study went that direction? And, and why do you think they did that study to, to rebut yours? It's hard to say. And um, yeah, I don't know anyone's motives in particular. Uh, it is notable that the research group in particular at that university uh, do seem very interested in... Uh, rebutting any suggestion that bicycle helmets are not a panacea for safety. So for whatever reason, they seem very heavily focused on the idea that uh, helmets are a, an important part of making cycling safe um, and, and don't like any research that disagrees with that. Um, something that we go into quite a bit of detail in the new paper is the wider issues around this. You know, we try to then step it back from you know, micro debates about one meter versus 1.5 meters and so on and we start asking these bigger questions of well what would actually make cycling safe um, and obviously what you come to is um, you make something safe by not having collisions in the first place rather than 
having collisions and then trying to reduce their severity very slightly. Mm -hmm. So why um, uh, did you partner with uh, another Australian researcher here, another academic, so Dorothy? Why why did you involve Dorothy on this particular um, bit of research? Yeah, I got in touch with Dorothy Robinson because she'd done some really interesting work in related areas in the past. I've never actually met her, um, but she did some very interesting analyses about the introduction of compulsory helmet laws in Australia. And yeah, again, there are some people who don't like her findings, but her analyses quite strongly suggested that when you look over time from before helmet laws were introduced to after, uh, you can't really see the benefits kicking in. You know, if making people wear bicycle helmets was going to have a big effect on population safety, you should see a big shift in in accident or injury rates at the time that helmets became compulsory. But her analyses suggest that you just don't see that, which rather suggests that there are other processes involved. Mm-hmm. So life is more complex, in other words. It is. I mean, we're talking about the road. It's a complicated environment. It's got lots of different actors involved. And in particular, there's there's vast asymmetry in terms of what's going on on the road. Not only do we have an an asymmetrical relationship where motorists are able just to cause a lot more harm than pedestrians or cyclists, but we also have asymmetry in terms of how the law treats them and the extent to which people are expected to take responsibility for their behavior. So it's complicated. um, And ultimately, it comes down to who can harm whom. And Mm -hmm. if you're driving a large motor vehicle weighing one or two tons, you have an ability to cause harm to other people. Um, And we're not going to fix that. And we're not going to allow very, very different groups who who are very different in vulnerability to mix safely with hats. You know, we need something far more fundamental than asking the person who is injured in the interaction to put a hat on. Um, it might be, you know, and, and obviously there's a completely separate debate about should you wear one for your own protection if you fall over by yourself? And that's a completely different discussion. But in terms of protecting cyclists from motor danger, uh, we're really going in the wrong direction if we're focusing on uh, a helmet that at best, can only do something after a collision has happened. So, for instance, on your um, Nordic 4000, your your incredible uh, uh, long-distance event that you won, mm-hmm. yes. you were wearing a cask helmet. I was. So you were wearing... Was that a stipulation of the race that you had to wear head protection or was that something you wear anyway because of what you just said there about, well, it's protection from you falling, but it's not protection from you getting hit by a, you know, an, an HGV coming along a, a, a Nordic road? Yeah, a bit of both of those, actually. I did wear one. Um, it, was, it was a requirement of the race, so it was compulsory. Uh, however, I might well have worn it anyway because the helmet I was wearing, I, I hope conveyed some aerodynamic advantage so yeah. probably worth going for that reason um and yes I, you know i don't have a problem particularly with you know the idea that i might do something silly over a very long sleep deprived ride and fall over um so i it's entirely appropriate for me to stick a helmet on if i think that's going to help in those circumstances um and like i say that's that's really quite a separate question but yeah, uh, where the question that I, I'm worried about is the question of somebody puts me in danger with a two-ton vehicle, and 
the idea that we then at that point suggest that the helmet might in any way be useful there. So the the study that was was rebutting yours mm. um, was was um, rebutting the helmet part of it. Has any other study been done to try and rebut the and I shouldn't say a blonde wig because it was actually a brunette wig. It was yeah. um, the, a, a, the, so you were trying to be a woman mm. on the road or look looking to, to a motorist coming you know behind you. As far as they're concerned, this is a is a woman up ahead mm-hmm. probably because you're wearing a, a, a long brunette wig. Mm. Um, so has anybody else tried to either replicate or rebut? that particular finding that people pass uh, a perceived woman uh, further out than than a than just an ordinary cyclist yeah absolutely they have so i know of at least two studies there was one done over in america and one done in i think taiwan and they did it with real men and women uh, because obviously they were following up my study and were doing it a bit more efficiently uh, and they found the same effects in those two countries Uh, Now, what's interesting, there was a very recent study that I've only skimmed because it just came out quite recently, but that was from Australia, uh, very relevantly, which found no advantage to being a woman in Australia. Uh, So it suggests that the effect that I found does replicate in some cultures, but in certain other cultures like Australia, it doesn't replicate. So it suggests that a lot of these effects might be quite, um, you know, uh, particular to the local culture and environments that you're talking about. And certainly, you know, unfortunately, it reinforces the perception that Australia might not be a cycling paradise. Mm. Now, if if you, you take your study at, at face value, mm-hmm. and for the purposes of this podcast, we are taking it uh, at face value, and it does seem to be a natural conclusion of when you have this helmet debate in general, Many, many people, including cyclists and including all sorts of people, just assume that helmets are protective against motor vehicle collisions mm-hmm. with bikes. So that suggests that, that there is this absolute feeling out there, even from the people who are very vulnerable, which are the cyclists, that these things do protect in in those sort of collisions. They want them to protect in those sort of decisions. So mm-hmm. that just suggests to me, by taking your yesterday face value, that it just it, it passes muster from that point of view in that there's so many cyclists believe helmets are protective in situations where they're, they're, they're demonstrably not protective. I, it certainly seems to be implicit in a lot of the discussion um, that people are making that assumption. Um, you know, if you look into the literature on helmet efficacy, um, they often do work. You know, th- there's a real sense in which they do reduce force or actually they spread force out over a longer period of time in the event of a direct collision to the head. So if you're asking this question, do they work, then they do in one sense. Uh, you know, they will reduce the force or spread out the time over which the force is exerted onto your head. Um, but the problem is, and this is something we mentioned in this new paper, uh, people tend to mix up two very different questions when they say, do helmets work? Uh, so on the one hand, there's the question, um, does a helmet work? Does a helmet make a difference in the event of being hit on the head? And then there's a second question. Does a helmet make a difference in the event you go for a ride on your bike? And because going for a ride on your bike almost always involves nothing going wrong, 
those two questions are not the same thing, but people tend to mix them together. Ian, I know you've got to, to rush and do your academic stuff, but can you just quickly tell us uh, uh, how people can get in touch with you and social media handles, that kind of stuff? Sure. Well, my website is drianwalker.com. That's D-R-I-A-N walker.com. And I am at Ian Walker on Twitter. 